This is Focal Point, the podcast where we discuss the artists, themes, and processes that define and sometimes disrupt the world of contemporary photography. I'm Kristen Taylor, curator of academic programs and collections with guests Steph Foster and Stephen Trelentes. Steph and Steve are both artists included in our permanent collection who work primarily in photography and film to reveal complexities of the criminal justice system and to shed light on the stories and systems behind mass incarceration that are largely concealed from public view. Steph Foster is interested in excavating manifestations of racism through an analysis of the systems and institutions that perpetuate inequity. His ongoing series, The Eyes Beneath the Oak, considers the criminal justice systems in the United States as linked to the history of slavery and one of the many places where black lives are dehumanized and erased for others to gain profit and hold power. Additionally, his short films slow down moments and gestures into poetic dream spaces that deconstruct expressions of identity and ritual. His work has been included in the exhibitions at the Brooklyn Museum of Art, the Southeast Museum of Photography, and the Cincinnati Contemporary Arts Center, and is held in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. He is the 2019 winner of the MOCP Snyder Prize and is currently featured in the MOCP exhibition American Epidemic, Guns in the United States, on view until February 20th, 2022. Steven Terlentes is a photographer joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, who began his series of photographs titled Of Length and Measures in 1996. Inspired by the sight of a newly constructed prison glowing in a nighttime prairie landscape, his images capture the glaring surveillance light of the institutions from a distance, forming, as he describes it, a physical and psychological border that affects those inside and out. His series of penitentiaries around the United States attempt to convey how the economies of prisons are growing exponentially and to connect these structures in the landscape to other societal patterns and policies that feed these institutions. Today we are discussing an artwork they have each chosen from the museum's permanent collection, as well as their own work and practice. So welcome to you both and thank you for joining us today. Um, If you could start with just stating your name and the name of the piece that you picked from the museum's collection and also just briefly describe what it looks like. Yeah, so I'm Stephen Torlentis and I've chosen the Breonna Taylor projection, Richmond, Virginia from Chris Graves' American Monuments series. And the image that I'm looking at is Uh, In Richmond, Virginia, it's in Monument Square, a statue of Robert E. Lee uh, that has been altered through colored graffiti and then projections. In this case, the projection is uh, Breonna Taylor's image, but it's also had projections of George Floyd and other Black Americans who have been uh, killed by police um, recently. And this is recent times. And the thing that struck me about this image is One, that there's just this kind of beautiful color in it, but it's also referencing so much history and has been activated by the recent intervention that that people have had with this, that it suddenly has changed the conversation from a civil war general on the side that lost and how slavery was a big part of what what he was fighting for. And talking about today, what Black Americans are dealing with in terms of just their everyday lives in this country. So my name is Steph Foster, and the the piece that I picked out from the collection 
is uh, Zora uh, Murph's uh, Jerome at 15. Uh, the image that I see, it appears to be a black man, strong black man with strong arms, and his head is turned backwards. He's in like a field, uh, like a like some type of sports field, and his head is turned away from the camera, but his body is shifted in this very unusual, somewhat relaxed but contorted position vying away from the camera looking at what appears to be a goal post and then as you read the image a little bit more you can see down by his ankle um, he has a government tracking device a tether on his ankle um, and he's wearing flip-flops with socks which is I think is a, a very real life moment yeah so you both picked pieces that I can see very direct connections between the work that you each make and the, the pieces that you chose. Um, so we have a lot of questions for both of you about your projects, and we'll, we'll get into more about these specific images from the collection as well and how we see connections between what they're doing and what you're doing. Um, so for both of you, I hope you can just start by telling us a little bit about the inspiration point for each of you in the in the projects that you're known for doing? Yeah, I've been working on projects, a long-term project, um, looking at mass incarceration in, our, in the U.S. and looking at it from the point of view of the institutions themselves, which are, the, are these often placed in small towns or on the periphery of population centers so that they, these sites of exile and, and where a vast institutional system is existing is often out of sight. And I felt like um, I was intrigued also how it changed the landscape and the places where they were located as well. And the project really started off from an, looking at issues about um, how money was being taken out of social systems in terms of support systems um, and schools, mental health, and then suddenly there was a spurt of growth then in terms of the prisons being built all over the country. So I was trying to look at that correlation in terms of how that was affecting communities and certain populations. Um, and uh, it's ongoing. I, I meant to, before I asked you that question, I was going to read a great quote, <laughs> which connects nicely to a quote that you have stuff. So, um, so Steve Torlantes, you said in your statement that the rural location of many of these prisons keeps them on the periphery of our consciousness. And I just, when I read both of your statements side by side, I see so many like direct correlations of what you're both doing. Um, because Steph, your statement says one of the most pernicious aspects of our prison system is how it renders people invisible and inaudible so that their stories are hidden from our collective understanding. This allows the perpetuation of exploitative and abusive systems that disproportionately affect people of color as their experiences are systematically hidden from view. Um, so same, same question. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to work in that way? So I started this project in 2017. My project is titled The Eyes Beneath the Oak. And I started it based on conversations with my aunt. My aunt, Natalie, she spent... 
say eight years in prison um for a nonviolent crime um and she was sentenced to about 30 years for for this crime and just what all these conversations that i had with her it really inspired me and she really inspired me to use like my my platform as an artist and as a cultural producer to create change so that's when I really started to do a lot of research and looking into the concept of the panopticon and this concept of there being like a guard in this center tower. He can see all and no one can see him. Right. And it renders these people very powerless. And just one person can really exert power over many, many people. So I, I was really looking at that first, and that's kind of how I pivoted to looking at the systems of prison as a whole. And with that being said, I really took the opportunity to look at prison from a higher up view, looking at it from the scope of capitalism and its relationship to slavery. But I've also been going to a lot of prison trade shows, which are these trade expositions um, somewhat similar to home and garden shows or uh, consumer electronics, something like that, but for the prison industrial complex. So I go to these uh, different prison trade shows um, and really see how capitalism is involved in the machine. Uh, Project still is not complete. It's ongoing. It almost feels like a never-ending battle, but I really want to keep going with it. You both have very different approaches to talking about a similar topic. And, and your interests, I think, are very similar with what you're hoping to do with your work. So, uh, Steve Torlentes, your work is um, like these dark landscapes photographed at night where you hold the exposure for a very long time, I understand, to capture the light quality of the prisons at night. Um, and then Steph Foster, your work is a lot of um, video, like slow down video of gestures, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, and also some still photographs. Like we have one photograph in our collection of a very expensive sports car in the parking lot of a, a strip mall with a bail bond store. And it seems at first like just a very banal kind of parking lot scene. And then you start to put together this um, very expensive car and this industry of, of like where that money is coming from. What are the challenges that you both feel um, that you have in working with photography and video to try to talk about something so complicated? Um, what are the challenges and what are the benefits of working in this medium to do this work? Hmm. Uh, you know, photography is, this, is an incredibly complicated medium because it's a medium that's almost better at asking questions than sort of trying to give answers. And so you, you hope that it asks good questions and provokes good conversations and, and reveals stories about the construction of the, the images and, and, and what's, what they are carrying. They, they carry an idea beyond the frame. In, in my case, I, I, you know, I grew up in Illinois and, and my father was, very, was a psychiatrist. He was very involved in mental health. And we actually lived on the grounds of a large state mental institution. Uh, when I, as I was growing up until I was about 12 or 13 years old. But we also witnessed during that time, the, the closure and the money being taken out of that system. And then in my hometown, the manufacturing base disappeared. And the town was then offered a state prison. And this was sort of during the, when um, the crack cocaine epidemic had built up a lot of furor. And 
the town for employment uh, gratefully accepted building this prison. And I, I was living in Boston at the time, but when I came home, I suddenly saw this bright illumination on the edge of town that had never been there before. And uh, it was kind of beautiful, but I didn't know what it was. And that's when my father told me that it was the new prison and that some of his former patients who had been at the state hospital were actually now incarcerated at the prison. And so that just kind of hung with me for a while. And, and uh, uh, I made a picture, didn't do anything with it because part of it also was the act of photographing these things. At, at night, they became, they separated from the landscape. They illuminated the landscape. So it was, it was broadcasting a signal. And I kind of felt like that signal was all the people incarcerated inside. So I, it, I just couldn't put it down. It was something that kind of just kept probing me. And then that's when I started looking into more of the issues behind who's being incarcerated and, and how these prisons are popping up in all, all these different towns where the economic base had fallen apart. And I also like using the big camera because it fails a lot. You know, it likes to have a lot of light and everything when I'm photographing, there's not much except for what the prison is doing. So I, I feel like I'm kind of making sure that there's a recording of this life that's, that is represented in the light. When I first saw your work, I thought it was just a very beautiful landscape at first. And then as I spent some more time with it, then it's very creepy and dark. And um, and you're thinking about all of the, the kind of monitoring that's happening in the landscape. So it's interesting that you both are choosing photography and thinking about surveillance, where photography is often the form of surveilling people. Mm-hmm. Um, so for you all, like, can you talk a little bit more about this idea of surveillance and what it means to you and your work and am I reading more to it than it is, or is it something that you are thinking about a lot whenever you're making your work? Well, it's a, it's a big part for me and because um, I, I feel like uh, the, that there's lots of things all of us share um, just in our day-to-day activities, you know, and uh, in terms of the sky and the sun, the clouds and all this kind of stuff, but, but these sites of exile, um, hold people in one geographic location and it's and it's built upon kind of um taking their senses and reducing them down to the bare minimum and um and then when 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 we're and then there are people surveilling and watching to make sure that that happens all the time they're they're control mechanisms and the thing that escapes them is when they're when i'm photographing them at night is that light that light goes beyond the boundaries of the prison and I know those inside, once they're inside, are spending so much of their lives thinking about the world outside where I'm at. And the fact that then there are people who are watching both sides. Often I get confronted and have issues in terms of why I'm there and what I'm doing. And uh, because I'm often there in the middle of the night. Uh, but it, it is this weird feedback loop or, of surveillance. Me watching the watchers we're watching those inside. Hmm. So yeah, surveillance is uh, a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would like to know more about what happens when, when you get caught up, because that's something that has also uh, happened to me while photographing prisons and around prisons. Um, but I agree with you. Um, and I, I think about surveillance. Uh, and I also think about is its counterpart surveillance, right? Um, quoting like Simone Brown, um, Dark Matters, uh, which is like this 
this process of like watching from below opposed to watching from above. And it, it really allows you to, um, I don't know, like find, find a, a power with the, that you can expose with the camera. Uh, and oftentimes in my work, I use like metaphors for cameras in, in my work. So uh, like I have a, a photo titled the eyes, uh, which is taken at one of those prison trade shows. And it has, um, one of those, uh, I forgot what they're called. They like the the big things that you go do the eye test with. Uh, of, of, oh yeah, I've seen I've seen that picture. Yeah, that's, the, that's yeah, the, picture. the yeah. full opter. I think it's called a full, full opter or something. I don't know. But, uh, but uh, yeah, like I, I use I'm using that as a metaphor for the camera. But that's what I feel like I'm doing. Like I feel like I'm using the, the it to watch the watchers. Um, yeah, so I, I'm really interested in that in that concept of of surveillance, and and that's what I I believe I'm trying to do with the with the camera. Yeah, what's happened? What what is, what's your interaction been when you um, draw the attention of uh, the watchers? You know, since I've been working on this project for a, or a little while, it it has really changed. Like my my first time, like. Uh, my first rodeo, I would say, I, I was really trying to charm my way through things. Uh, so you know, smiling and and playing buddy buddy with with whatever, and playing this more docile role. Um, you know, I know the color of my skin, and you know, I'm not a little guy. I'm like six one. <laughs> Uh, you know, I always add that extra inch when I when I'm talking in public. <laughs> but you know, uh, I, yeah. So I, I I always felt that people would be intimidated just by my look, and uh, yeah. So I, at first, I tried to like you know disarm the situation, diffuse the situation by playing a more docile role. But more recently, I I've started to play and lean into uh my stature and uh you know maybe appearing a little bit more like i'm standing my ground on things uh and that's been working out very well somehow <laughs> yeah so yeah when yeah. people question me like i just you know uh give them authority back and for some reason that's been working so i think that's my my new uh, approach for now, but I really started with a really different approach. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about everything you're saying and then thinking about the Zora J. Murph collection choice again, because that project called Corrections, he made while working at a youth correctional facility. So trying to, like you both were talking about, trying to tell these stories of people that are living through the realities of, of being incarcerated, but you can't create portraits in the typical way right so mm -hmm. do you um i think you said you you have kind of a friendship with zora do you want to tell us a little bit about your understanding of that project and why why it's interesting for you to talk about today well yeah well zora is just a dope guy right <laughs> like he's just a good dude um and yeah i think he what what i really like about zora and his projects is that he makes work that is sometimes difficult to digest like he he isn't all the time interesting interested in aestheticizing every single moment um so like some of his pictures aren't that beautiful and i think that is great like 
Uh, and some most of his pictures are right. So I think like the fact that he has that like courage to to show the stories for how they really are and how he renders them um, is just something that is so uh, I don't know like commendable. And have you have you heard about the recent controversy with Zora? No. Yeah. Uh, so this happened like last week. He. Uh, was invited to do a show at 21C uh, Hotels in Arkansas. And once he delivered the work, him it was his work with, like, three other white artists. And once they all delivered the work, they started, like, pressing him about adding additional context, but not asking any of the other artists for additional context. And then they just removed his work from the show. Wow. Just, you know just removed it and you know fortunately in 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 the former protest the other artists also withheld their work from the show in in retaliation but you know like when when you get to the point where people are trying to censor your work you're probably doing something right (laughs) i i really believe that um so yeah i mean i i really applaud him for for making that decision or in the other artists making that decision but also think it's it's pretty uh um, ruthless mm-hmm. and and hurtful, what what that company did to him and, and and you know they really pride themselves on being like a museum hotel and really being for the arts, but they really like twenty one C is not about free expression. Clearly, yeah. was it the current series that we have up right now, or was it this correction series? I think it's like a, a combination of works, like mm-hmm. some of his newer works and some of his older works. He had a lot of different imagery, mm-hmm. um, so it had like a, a interesting lineage mm-hmm. of works that he was, you know, preparing to show. Mm-hmm. And basically, the work got there, and it was too black for them. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve Zora Murph is in our exhibition right now as well, and yeah. Um, yeah. So just if you were familiar with with the work at all, but I know that. When he started, um, when he put the work in this exhibition, it was the first kind of major exhibition of this project. And he and Karen had conversations about like how it might be received because there is like cell phone footage of police killings. Um, so very relevant to your your collection choice by Chris Graves. There's mm. a lot of work about um, police violence and also thinking about the role of the camera and all of that and, and perpetuating narratives, but also in documenting stories that were untold and how um, it's like a part of this movement that we're in. So um, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about Chris Graves' image too, um, because I think it's interesting that, you know, he's also photographing these night landscapes and, and probably a longer exposure and getting all of the kind of details of the light and all the color of the graffiti. Um, is it um, for you when you're talking about trying to think about the stories of people living through that, um, is there something about the landscape that is particularly like appealing to you in, in telling stories of people? Um, cause I imagine that's a pretty challenging medium to work in or, or genre to work in is mm. using the landscape to tell live stories. Um, what do you think about that Chris Graves is doing right in that series that was kind of interesting to you about the way he's photographing the landscape? Well, I mean, um, it's the thing in photography. He's using the whole frame. You know, he's t- taking advantage of all everything that that camera will record, and including um, 
not only the, you know, he lets, he lets your eye travel through the, the frame. And that's what um, is interesting about it because it's not just Robert E. Lee and it's not just Breonna Taylor's image that's on there, but it's, you do, you, you see a blur of somebody in the corner and, and, and all the color and, and the clouds above, um, you know, that extends it beyond just uh, a, this single thing that you, you know, and most photographs, at least when I work, you know, I'm sort of pointing my finger at something, but I want that pointing to kind of extend into all these other things that we sort of maybe aren't expecting to see right off the bat. So it offers more than just the initial impulse when you first look at it. And that's when I photograph, I'm like, uh, uh, you know, I use a big view camera that's very old school. Um, and I'm interested in the landscape as well. You know, it's like some of these institutions that are holding people and, and warehousing people are in actually very beautiful landscapes. And, that, and there's a whole history of photography about sort of extolling the American landscape and the travel through. So I, I, I'm, I'm a, a little bit trying to kind of push against that history and keep it contemporary. And even though I'm using tools that have been around for forever. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, shout out to Chris Graves too. We we, we uh we're signed to the same uh gallery. Mm. Uh and I remember seeing that image uh I first seen that image as the cover of National Geographic. That's mm -hmm. when I first encountered that image. And uh yeah, it's just such a it's such a beautiful yet like I don't know, like heartbreaking image at the same time. Uh, yeah, it's just something that I, I really admire how how he does that entire series uh, of works, looking at uh, you know those monuments of uh, slavery and the Civil War. Yeah, um, his work, of course, connects so much to the exhibition that that we have up right now called "American Epidemic: Guns in the United States." And um, Steph, your work is in that show and um and it there's a video that you've made where you've slowed down um people pouring out a drink and you just see like kind of the close-up of the the um, presumably liquor <laughs> being poured out and it's in this like beautiful black and white like uh sort of close-up view of that that action happening and then it's kind of um clear if if you're familiar with this ritual that it's like a pouring pouring one out ritual that is like that people do at grave sites for people that they're close to to kind of like pour a drink out on the person's grave to kind of honor them um and then the audio track over it is um very harrowing of yemi sandifer's grandmother at his funeral in 1994 um so that's just my background for anybody who haven't seen the piece to kind of imagine your piece in the show. Um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this particular choice of making a piece about a, a particular instance of, of death by gun that happened in 1994 in Chicago, why you chose that, and also why you chose to make the piece in that particular way. Mm -hmm. It was one of the more difficult pieces to make. Um like technically speaking, but also like emotionally speaking, it was very, very challenging for me to uh, make that. So basically the way I, I make this series is I create video footage using a high speed camera, um, shooting, shooting at about a thousand frames per second. 
um, which is about 40 times slow motion. Uh, so I record these these visuals and I, I then scavenge in, in different archives, internet archives, libraries for audio that I would like to pair with the visuals that I create. Sometimes I do the visuals first. Sometimes I, I find the audio first. Uh, this particular piece, uh, I found the, the, I made the video first and actually took a lot of takes. Like I, I went through a lot of beer, uh, for, it was like, you know, cheap malt liquor, like King Cobra, like straight from the corner store. Right. But I went through like, like 10, 40 ounces trying to make this thing, like just dropping them. Um, but yeah, we, we, we made the, me and my team, we made the, the footage and then it came time for me to pair it with some audio. And I had, I actually had, like different choices which is one of the most disheartening things about it is that like I had different choices <laughs> like but uh you know coming across yummy story and uh you know the archive of footage behind his death um because his death was a spectacle right like they had photojournalists at his funeral in the audio I don't know if most people probably don't notice, but you hear a lot of clicks and flashes. Um, those are photographers from different publishers and news outlets taking pictures of this this 11-year-old kid being dropped into the ground with his his family mourning over him at, at the moment. And, you know, you, you hear this this thing playing out. You, you hear the, the preacher... Uh, wrap things up just so quickly and so coy is is it was it's i can't even explain how like that that really makes me feel um and i just remember seeing that footage and just just crying in my studio for hours and hours into the late night like i actually created it for an exhibition that was going up the next day mm-hmm. Which is something that I probably shouldn't have been doing. I should have had this thing done much further in advance. But, uh, and I just remember that moment of just being in my studio. And uh, yeah, when I when I finished it and I put everything together, I had I got a lot of uh, different opinions on it. I you know because I didn't know if it was something that I should be showing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that bringing awareness to Yummy's life, uh, and and offering as a tribute to him and, and his folks, I think is is just. I think it's one of those important things that I need to do as like a black artist. I I do think I have some type of responsibility to, to to my people and to preserve our history. And I think if I can do it this way, um, it also opens the gate for somebody else to to offer their self authorship. It's so interesting if if people aren't aware of the whole publicity around Yummy's death because they put his picture on the cover of Time magazine and then it became like sort of propaganda for President Bill Clinton to push through his crime bill, which then um, increased policing and lowered the age at which a child could be tried as an adult. So it ended up then growing the numbers of black men who were incarcerated, particularly black men, or like... um, very heavily affecting that demographic. 
and um, and then kind of destroying, like further destroying a lot of black neighborhoods, right? Mm. So it's interesting, like how, I mean, the, the Yami Sandifer case, of course, was 1994. Um, and also, Steve, your work started in 1996. So I think both of you are are kind of thinking further back beyond the movement a little bit of like, this is something a lot of people are talking about more, um, especially after Michelle Alexander's groundbreaking book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration, The mm-hmm. Age of Colorblindness came out in 2010. Um, has has that publication, and particularly for you, Steve, has that changed the way you work? Or like this kind of, is has your work been received differently now that this is more of a, a topic that people are becoming more and more aware of? I feel like I'm not good at words, you know, like my best voice is through these pictures and also making sure that people see through the body of the work that these things are in most everybody's backyards. People know one of these places and they're not just in one certain part of the country, like the Angola prison, like the rodeo, the prison rodeo in Angola, Steph can attest to, you know, that I went there to photograph and I often just show up because asking permission is usually a no. And uh, there was no place to kind of just roll up and make a picture uh, in somebody's backyard or something like that. So I had to, the warden had to let me in. Um, and that was an interesting negotiation. Um, but you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get in. I tried to get in. <laughs> I, I, I was, I was, uh, I was talking with uh, uh, warden Gary Johnson. He was probably a warden at the time you went too. When did you go? No, I, I went, it was the previous warden and his name was Burl Kane. Oh, Earl yeah, Kane yeah, was yeah. the warden. Yeah, and and I just happened to be there on a Friday night in March, and so he he called a couple of um, prisoners who were, had some privileges, who came in a truck and drove me around the interior of the prisons because that prison is there's like four or five prisons within that plantation. Yeah, and you got lucky. <laughs> you I got lucky, and, and, and you know I. I have to say that it's only been in the last 10 years or so where I've kind of realized also that, you know, when I show up with a big eight by 10 camera, it's old. It's kind of, they're kind of curious about that. And also I'm a white guy. You know, if I yep. showed up in the middle of the night, you know, with a bunch of camera equipment and that somehow I'm able to talk my way through some of these situations that I don't know if, a, if I was a different person that that would work as well. So it's a certain privilege that I have to understand that, that's gotten me out of some trouble. Man, that's that's crazy because what happened with me is um I wrote them a letter like a month in advance before the rodeo in October. And they they said, All right, you good, you can come and you know, bring your camera, you good. And I was like, Word. And then I got on the plane like a month later, and as soon as I got there, the warning calls me and uh you know, he I, I was like photographing somewhere else and I, I got a voicemail and it just, he just said that he changed his mind. He wasn't going to let me bring my, my gear. Can you guys, I don't think most people know what a prison rodeo is. <laughs> Can you describe that? Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, it's, it's, oof. go ahead. You t- you. So uh, a prison rodeo, I mean, it's really in the name, um, but it is a, uh, competition of death defying games involving bulls horses and other you know wild animals and prisoners and they compete for cash prizes and privileges at the prison it's like a county fair but with prisoners in in the ring with bulls and 
Yeah, it's a really just wild place to be. And it's just one prison that does this. This isn't like a whole No, nah, it's, it's one prison, uh, Angola prison. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Angola because it is on a former slave plantation That's where right. uh, most of the slaves came from the country of Angola that worked those worked that plantation. So, And it still has that name. It's not the official name, but that's what everyone calls it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a wild, wild event. Yeah, I mean, you, you both, yeah. I think, talk about, I mean, I'm assuming that's done as like a fundraiser or something too. Like, I mean, they must make a lot of money doing this, I would assume, right? Well, it depends on what you mean by fundraiser. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> funds, <laughs> not fun. Do, no, do <laughs> charge admission. Yeah. yeah. Do charge admission. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, but like fun, like, right, like mm-hmm. when, when I think of fundraising, mm-hmm. I think of like charity. Mm-hmm. When I think of, uh, you know, for profit mm-hmm. is a different thing. I don't consider it fundraising. I mm-hmm. believe it's like a for-profit right. venture. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's something that a lot of people don't outright think of around like the prison industrial complex, that it is such a for-profit industry. And that's where we're having a lot more um, books come out and people speaking about this and, and thinking about um, so when you just made the connection too to the plantation of just like thinking about these continued economies of keeping um, black populations in like out of power that mm-hmm. then people are profiting off of. Um, can you also stuff talk a little bit more about like that bail bonds image that I talked about in the beginning and that piece? And I know that you've done a lot of research about the bail bonds market, but can you also share that for maybe people aren't aware of that kind of economy? Yeah, uh, so the bail bonds economy is a very, very profitable business. So I, I know you guys have a lot of listeners that live outside of the United States, so I, I'll try to explain it the best I can. So they don't have cash bail in many other countries. The U.S. is pretty unique uh, with with its cash bail system. Cash bail is a system where uh, if you get arrested, um, you basically go to jail you are detained um until your court date until you need to go to court so with cash bail you can put up a particular amount of cash to go free until your court date and you get that money back when you appear at your court date uh most people who get arrested don't have the money to pay the cash bail so with that being said, like, what do they do? Do they just sit in, in, in jail until the court date? Well, they have the option to go to a bail bondsman. So a bail bondsman will pay your bail, and basically they expect that money back when you go to court plus 10% on top of that. I guess, like, a lot of questions that people have is like, okay, well, what happens if you don't go back to court? Mm-hmm. So... Um, usually a warrant is out for your arrest, but also if you went to a bail bondsman, uh, they're looking for you too. That's what a bounty hunter is for. That's who hires bounty hunters mm-hmm. <laughs> these days. And they, their job is to like find people and return them to the courts or return them to the law enforcement and, you know, re- receive their reward and get the, uh, money back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think something that a lot of people kind of, don't think about or it's just something that becomes like a normal part of the the landscape around prisons like not everywhere is this legal like i believe in illinois the governor just voted to to end bonds here but i don't it's I'm, happening it's yeah. happening yeah, i feel like a lot of places are like catching on that it's something that is really uh 
contributing to inequity when it mm-hmm. comes to our law enforcement system. Yeah. yeah. You know, along with that, the private prison industry also is a, a big player in this whole uh, growth system. I knew about it, but I was introduced to it directly when I was down trying to photograph in Mississippi, the Parchman Farms, which is on a plantation as well. It's sort of their version of Angola prison in Louisiana. And it's, it's a vast use of plantation land for prison. But usually when I, you know, when I'm trying to find these places, sometimes I'm getting there late in the day and I can see the lights of the prison to kind of direct me to where I'm going. And so I saw these lights and I started driving towards them and I stopped at a gas station to get gas. And I asked the clerk, I said, that's the parchment farms up down the road there, right? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, the parchment farms is down that way. He goes, that's the Hawaiian prison. Mm. And I kind of look at him like, what are you talking about? And he said, yeah, that's, that's the Hawaiian prison. That's a private prison right over there. And it's full of Hawaiian prisoners. And so the state of Hawaii had contracted with a private company that had built a prison in Mississippi to export um, and hold their prisoners there in Mississippi. Uh, under a, a private company that you can buy stock in, a you know, for-profit company. It's wild. Even um, there's uh, near RISD, in Central Falls, Rhode Island, there's a private prison that's been, that the town itself purchased and built or set up to, to, to raise funds for the city. Um, and it's used basically as an ICE uh, immigration facility to, to hold immigration uh, prisoners. Um. One last question, as I know we're about out of time. Um, what are you all working on now? What can we expect next from you? Well, I, I'm I'm working on sort of collecting. I've, I've had a lot of these images, especially during all this COVID time where I haven't been able to travel. So there's lots of uh, places that travel to photographing prisons um, that I need, that I'm sort of cataloging and putting together and trying to get that in book form. And then... Um, I've got all sorts of little projects going on, but the main main thing that I'm really set into is making sure that the, the prison work gets seen. Yeah, well, I actually took a little little hiatus on this project, um, which I plan on getting back to after it's just a little bit more safer and just not as hot out. But Steve, I, I you know, they having a, a another prison trade show uh, in Philadelphia, my hometown where I'm staying right now. Um, uh, it's happening in 2023. I, I would love for you to come along. You know, we wow. can, you yeah. know, we can, we can, um, you know, that uh, would be awesome. Yeah. 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 We should, we should definitely link up for that. Um, that, that would be great. And yeah. plus I, I feel like I need a, a resident white guy with me to get me into things. <laughs> 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 but uh, as, as far as right now, like what I'm working on, like in the, in the immediacy is I'm actually starting a, a new company. Uh, it's called Athenium Editions mm-hmm. and it's an artist run print lab, press and book publisher. Um, and, you know, my goal is to, you know, help shed light on some of the other like key, impressive and conscious image makers um, from, you know, around the world. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of work and it's been really challenging starting this up. But, you, you know, we there, we at the finish line and we should be launching yeah. very, very soon. Very exciting. I love it. So. I love our focal point connection too that happened here, art connection. And I, I mm-hmm. can't wait to see what you all do together. If that happens, please, please keep us posted. Yeah, you, you'll see it. <laughs> yeah. It's been a great pleasure to talk to both, both of you. So, Likewise. Uh, 
Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Focal Point. Focal Point is presented by the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago in partnership with WCRX Radio. Special thanks to Professor Matt Cunningham and producer Matt Byrne. Music is by Zavi. To see the images we discussed today, please visit mocp.org backslash focal point. You can also follow the Museum of Contemporary Photography on Facebook and Instagram at mocpshi. That's M-O-C-P-C-H-I and on Twitter at M-O-C-P underscore Chicago. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Focal Point anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, producer for Focal Point and production director at WCRX-FM. We'd like to share a clip with you from another great series produced here at WCRX-FM. This is from the third season of the Here To podcast. The Here To Project is a Columbia College Chicago organization that shares stories on gun violence, inspired in part by the March for Our Lives movement. Through devised theater performances, they amplify the voices of youth activists throughout the country. The following clip features Here To co-founder Jimmy Mays and creator of American Origami, Andreas Gonzalez, discussing the creation of the theater adaptation presented at Columbia College Chicago. Enjoy. Yeah, when I heard, you know, especially because my my project ends at Parkland and there mm-hmm. starts at Parkland, so it almost felt like a perfect yeah. extension of, you know, just mm-hmm. this, this the collaboration just felt really, really great. And the two pieces, I think, fit really well because, as Andres just alluded to, you know, his project is all about mass school shootings mm-hmm. and, and really does delve into the aspect of trauma and grief and how you go on after, after an event like that, mm-hmm. um, looking at the ephemera and and the condolences and a lot of those items here too really looks at the other side of that what you do with to get you know to work through that grief how you can empower yourself how you can move towards activism how you can make a political change and so we really felt like these two sides of the coin would would pair well as an evening because you know we're inundated with stories of mass shootings and of gun violence and it it can feel very um, stymieing and almost like you know, we can almost become immune to the amount of stories we hear. Both of our projects want to combat that, mm-hmm. but we also really want to create an evening in the theater that that doesn't, you know, brutalize our audiences. We want to really create a lot of uplift, a lot of um, possibility, a lot of action that can come out of an event like this. And so um, when you hear, oh, I'm going to an evening of two shows about gun violence, mm-hmm. we don't want to... Um, misconstrue that it's going to be, um, you know, really dour, sour, sad evening. It's going to have a lot of power and a lot of activism and a lot of, of possibility. You can find the Here Too podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. From all of us at Focal Point, bye for now. <laughs>